Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Michael Rothman, uh, the co-founder and chief science officer of ParaHealth, which is a company designed um, to recognize uh, de clinically deteriorating patients in, throughout the hospital um, early and accurately in order to optimize their care and get them to the right spot at the right time. Motivated by the avoidable death of his mother after a common complication when undetected following a low-risk surgical procedure, Dr. Rothman, he spent uh, about 30 years of data analysis and mathematical modeling experience, um, in including the, close to two decades at IBM's uh, Watson Research Laboratory to develop the what's termed the Rothman Index and the Pediatric Rothman Index. It's been validated by um, approximately 20 peer-reviewed publications. The Rothman Index, uh, it translates data stored in a hospital's electronic health records into a uh, one, zero out of 100 score and that's presented in color-coded graphs allowing nurses and physicians to quickly visualize patient condition conditions trended over time. He's currently the, the uh, chief science officer at ParaHealth, which he founded, and um, he focuses on data analysis and product development through consulting, patient filing, joint ventures. Um, he has focused on projects that have included customized discharge forms for hospitals, helping determine cash flow and profitability for pharmaceutical companies, new drugs, and pro bono work analyzing uh, puppy mortality data. Right. Um, he uh, holds a bachelor and master of science degree in chemistry from Brown and a PhD in chemistry from University of Michigan. And I uh, personally heard Dr. Rothman talk at the Johns Hopkins Saffir Symposium a few months ago and uh, thought it'd be a perfectly appropriate uh, topic to delve into for us here today. Thank you, Dr. Rothman. Thank you, Mike. Good afternoon. I'm very uh, pleased to be here at the University of Maryland. And this, this uh, afternoon, I will cover just a few topics. The origin of this index, which uh, Mike referred to, which is called the Rothman Index, the science behind it, how it's been used, and what outcomes we've seen at various hospitals. As you just heard, this really is a personal story. The, on, the, on the left, on that first picture, and all the way on the right are pictures of my mother. She, she had aortic stenosis, and uh, subsequent to that, a valve replacement operation initially did well but over the next few days slowly deteriorated. And without going into the details of, of her experience, she was discharged, came back to the hospital four days later, and died in the ED of a cardiac tamponade. So after this happened, uh, my brother and I sat down and really ask the question, why? This was truly an avoidable death. As we looked into it and thought about it, what we came to understand, though, was that we believe 
that the doctors and nurses taking care of my mother were competent, but it seemed that the system itself had failed. What I mean by that is this. I became acquainted with electronic, electronic medical records at that time. And when I was in the hospital with my mother, I saw what was very clearly a desire to get all the information available to everybody in one place. There would no longer be the situation that a folder was misplaced, you couldn't find the folder, or you couldn't read someone's handwriting. But the net of it really is that you've developed an electronic filing cabinet. All the information is there, it's not organized, it's not integrated, and so the impact of that is although the information is there, there's a significant limitation into its utility. Specifically, my, my mother was seen by a, a nurse on a Tuesday who said, okay, there's reasonable condition for someone so many days after major surgery. Another nurse saw her the next day and said, now, this is reasonable condition for someone so many days after major surgery. What they couldn't determine, what they couldn't detect, was that from, from the first day to the second day, she'd actually deteriorated. And catching that trend is extremely difficult. And so we asked the question, why isn't there just a number, a single number, which captures the patient's acuity which you can track over time. And that started us on what became a long journey. Uh, as uh, you've heard, my background is not in medicine, it's in chemistry. I've been doing data analysis and modeling for 30 years. But we started working at the hospital where my mother passed away. We, my brother went in and saw the CEO of the hospital and said, we have some ideas. Would you let us come in? And uh, there's another entire story about the, the details, what happened next, but we did get in. We looked at data from 70 patients in a cardiac step-down unit and found something encouraging and came back several months later, started a real project, looked at 1,200 patients, then 6,000 patients, then 25,000 patients, then built, re rebuilt this model, this initial model on a sound statistical basis, integrated it with software, realized at some point that in order to deliver this, to a hospital, we had to form a company, formed a company, and what you see on the bottom of the slide are some of our early hospitals. Uh, Sarasota Memorial is where we began. Houston Methodist, Yale New Haven were early adopters, UPMC. Memorial Sloan Kettering is one of the more recent hospitals. But 
our measure of success, this is my personal measure of success, was that if we could prevent what happened to my mother from happening to one other person, then it would be worthwhile. So, fortunately and surprisingly, um, we've achieved far beyond that. These are some of the other hospitals, uh, academic medical centers, community hospitals, pediatric hospitals, specialty hospitals. We're at about 25 health systems, which comprise about 70 hospitals around the country. So I wanted to tell you today, I want to talk today about the science behind it. I, it is important that this score be viewed not as just a black box, but that you understand that there's logic behind it. And what I've delineated here are the elements which are uh, unique to our approach, what I call the heart of the model. First is nursing assessments. So when I began, I didn't know what a nursing assessment was. I was looking at all the data in the medical record, and I found this thing called a nursing assessment, which happened to have a binary uh, value. Either a person had met or not met a minimum standard for each of about a dozen physiological systems. So what I came to understand is that when a nurse sees a patient, he or she does a very structured evaluation of that patient, rating each of these dozen physiological systems as either having met a standard or not having met that standard, goes back to the computer and enters it into the computer. So first of all, this is a, part of nursing school curricula. It's universal. And to give you an example of a standard, the GI standard requires that the abdomen be soft and non-tender, four quadrants of bowel sounds, um, no nausea or vomiting, and bowel continent. So if all of those things are true, you would have met the minimum standard. If any of those are false, you would not have met the standard. It's almost like a headline for each physiological system. Either you've met the minimum standard or not. They're recorded roughly twice each day, and every hospital records essentially the same data. It is a fact, however, that every hospital records essentially the same data differently, um, but we've addressed that problem. We take the the data as it's supplied by the hospital would go through a translation process and put it into a standard form so that we can use it. However, when I started down this path on nursing assessments and incorporated them into our model, I ran across a great deal of skepticism um, from physicians and also from nurses that nursing assessments are um, basically inconsistent, um, unreliable, uh, more or less meaningless. And any model which used nursing assessments had a problem in the beginning. And so 
we had to go out and prove that there was clinical information in these nursing assessments. So we did a study. We looked at 42,000 patients over two one-year periods at a community hospital. And this is some of the outcome that we got. We looked at, first of all, in-hospital mortality. And we're looking at the first assessment upon, <coughs> upon admission. And what you see on those bars are odds ratios. So what that means is if you come in, you get your neurological assessment. If you fail your neurological assessment, you're 9.4 times as likely to die in the hospital as if you pass your neurological assessment. And you're eight times as likely to die in the hospital if you fail your respiratory assessment as if you pass it, and so forth. All of these uh, nursing assessments had significance. We then looked at the last nursing assessment taken just before discharge. We married the data with the Social Security death file. So we could answer the question, is this patient alive a year after discharge? And what we found was that if you failed your food and nutrition assessment, you were almost seven times as likely to die in that following year as if you passed your food and nutrition assessment. If you fail your neurological assessment, you're about six and a half times as likely to die in the following year and so forth. Turns out that pain is not uh, predictive of one-year mortality, and so it's not part of our model. But this is what we put together. So if the first nursing assessment taken upon admission correlates with in-hospital mortality, and the last nursing assessment taken just prior to discharge correlates with post-discharge mortality, then it's reasonable to infer that all nursing assessments gathered throughout a patient's stay contain significant clinical information. And we published this in 2012. There is another aspect of nursing assessments, though, that's important to mention, and that is that they serve as early indicators of deterioration. Before you see decompensation, you see blood pressure plummeting or heart rate racing, what you'll see is the patient is failing these nursing assessments. So what does failing a nursing assessment mean? Um, patient stops eating. They get confused. Uh, they have edema. Their digestion shuts down. They're having trouble walking. These sorts of functional things are picked up by the nursing assessments, and they tend to happen before you get to a crisis. So the nursing, having that nursing data gives us an early indication of deterioration. The second novel aspect of what we're doing is the way that we estimate risk. So that the graph on the right shows creatinine, and if you look at the x-axis, uh, those numbers are 0 0.5, 1, 1.52, and so forth. The y-axis is change in one-year mortality. So let me explain what that graph is about. We took 25,000 patient visits. We looked at the last measured value of creatinine, and we 
looked to see whether that patient had survived a year following discharge. So we had 25,000 pairs of numbers, creatinine and yes or no, they lived. We ordered them from low creatinine to high creatinine and bucketed them. So I said, okay, everyone whose final creatinine is less than 0.4, what percentage of those patients died in the following year? From 0.4 to 0.5, what percentage of those patients died? From 0.5 to 0.6 and so forth. And we got this very nice U-shaped curve, which I, when we did it, we didn't know what we were gonna get at all. So this was a surprise, but a, a good surprise. And so what it says is that elevated creatinine is associated with elevated risk. And I came to later learn related to kidney disease or kidney problems. Low creatinine uh, is related to muscle wasting with also elevated risk. Okay, but there's more to this. If you look, there's sort of a, uh, a flat part of the curve uh, which goes between 0.6 and 1.1. And if you look at the y-axis, that's at zero. Well, even, even if you have perfect creatinine, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to live for a year. So the, the base mortality rate for this population was about 8%. So what we did was we subtracted the base level of mortality. So that curve represents the elevation above the base level. So, but still from 0.6 to 1.1, uh, you have no risk. And so what we then did is went back to the pathology lab and said, well, what's the normal value for creatinine? They said 0.5 to 1.2. So what that means is that using this technique, we were able to identify the normal range of creatinine as in fact the low risk range. In other words, if you're in the normal part of the distribution for creatinine, you don't have any risk associated with that value. As you deviate from the norm, uh, risk increases. We looked at uh, another example. This is, so we call these curves excess risk curves because it's excess above the baseline. Now you're looking at heart rate. The, the purple line is calculated in exactly the same way as the creatinine curve. That yellow step function comes from a system called MUSE. Um, some of you may be aware of it. It stands for Modified or Other Warning System, developed about 15 years ago in the UK, purpose of which was to identify patients on a med surge unit that were at risk for cardiac arrest so that they could be identified and moved to the ICU before the event. Well, as part of that score, they evaluated the risk associated with heart rate. And what they said was that if your heart rate is between 50 and 100, you don't have any heart rate associated risk. Between 100 and 110, they give you one point of risk. Between 110 and 130, they give you two points of risk and so forth. And so if you look at the two curves, it almost looks like the purple curve was drawn through the yellow curve, which was very exciting for us when we saw this too. Uh, However, they were developed completely independently. The purple curve was developed empirically in the manner I just described. The yellow curve 
is the consensus of expert opinion as to what elevated heart rate means in terms of risk, and it was put together by a group of intensivists. So what this says is not only do we, do we identify the normal range uh, properly, but as you deviate from the normal range, we, we capture the escalation of risk with deviation properly. At least it's in agreement with experts. And this we published in 2013. I was giving this talk to a group of physicians a while ago, and, and I had the graph on the right, which is blood oxygen saturation. You see this very large increase in risk as you go from 100 down to 85%. And this uh, doc said, I've seen that curve before in my medical physiology textbook. So we found, or he gave me a reference. I looked it up, and sure enough, um, the x-axis in the two graphs is the same. It's blood oxygen saturation. Um, what you can see is that going from 100 down to 85, there's a very large variation in the y value here. The y-axis is showing you the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, the amount of oxygen which is actually available. And so what you can see is that going from 100% saturation 85% saturation, the amount of available oxygen actually falls 50% from 120 millimeters of mercury to 60. And so that's a very nice physiological validation of the shape of the curve that we were able to derive with our method. Okay. One of the uh, problems in modeling is called the data fusion problem. How do you take different types of data and put it together in a single model. Well, what we did was we took a wide range of variables. We wanted to be sensitive to deterioration on any different modality. So whether it's, it's evidenced by vital signs, nursing assessments, or lab tests, uh, we wanted to be able to get that signal. But what we did is, for each of these variables, we computed an excess risk curve. So you might uh, recognize, here's creatinine, by the shape of that curve. Here's the heart rate. And um, here's blood oxygen saturation. And what you can see is now they're all on a common scale. They've all be been converted to what we call excess risk. And by the way, here are the nursing assessments. And I know you can't read that, but the, the nursing assessment which has the greatest impact is the food and nutrition assessment, if you're not eating. And the, the way that it played out in the data is you're about the mortality rate if you fail your food and nutrition assessment upon discharge is about 40% greater than if you pass it. Not 40% not of the, the rate, but 40 points greater. So if your mortality was uh, 8%, it would be 48%. Um, okay, so if you wanted to calculate the Rothman index, 
you could sort of do it by hand, which is, you know, it, there are actually a few pages of equations to actually get the number, but uh, if you had the 26 inputs, you took each input, you went to the appropriate uh, excess risk curve and plugged in that number, you read off the risk, and then you summed the risk across these 26 variables, so you got total risk. The way that we calculate the score, we wanted 100 to be unimpaired, so we subtract the risk from 100. So the lower the score, the sicker the patient. So that's, that's in effect how you calculate the index. And we published this in 2013 in the Journal of Biomedical Informatics. This is the paper. It is, uh, uh, as uh, Michael was saying, we have, uh, we now have about 25 peer-reviewed articles, some by us, many by uh, researchers at various hospitals using the system. But I, I keep track of how many times the article is viewed. And I think the last time I checked, we were up to about 8,300. Um, now, it's not a big number if you're looking at like the followers of Beyonce or something like this. But uh, 8,300 is pretty much everybody in the world who cares about bioinformatics. So everyone's read this paper, and it was actually honored at the annual meeting of the medical American Medical Informatics Association uh, in the year that it came out. It was, it was honored as one of the top papers of the year. So what we do is we generate a score and we graph that score over time. And the graphs themselves are color-coded. And what this slide shows is the rationale behind the color coding. What you see here on the y-axis is the Rockman index on the x-axis is the likelihood of a very severe outcome, either death or discharge to hospice, within the next 48 hours. And you see, going from 100 down to about 65, you're pretty much hugging the y-axis, very little chance of uh, a severe outcome. From 65 down to 40, you go from about 3 to 8% likelihood. And so, Patients whose scores are in that range are viewed as worrisome. Below that, risk escalates pretty dramatically. And this graph in itself is another validation of the score. It shows, it, it's a nice demonstration of the concept of physiological reserve, which is to say that if you're at a 90 and you get uh, 10 points of insult knocking you down to 80, very little change in your risk. But if you're at a 20 and you go down to 10, there's this huge increase in risk. And that's because someone who is that sick cannot take that one more thing. And when we graph these, uh, when we make a graph of the uh, scores, we color code it by the last value of the index. But the model itself is what is called a heuristic model. It's a constructed model. It's not built to predict a specific thing. It's just built to capture the idea of risk. So if you build a model like that, it's incumbent upon you to prove that it means something. Um, and so we spent a lot of time working on validation. These are just some of the things that we did. This is looking at the score, and this is 
the likelihood of dying within the next 24 hours, and these are results from three different hospitals. This is looking at the score at discharge versus the likelihood of readmission within 30 days, and you can see this, uh, that likelihood of, uh, to readmit come is much higher as the score falls. This is the uh, correlation with uh, the Apache 3, initial estimate of mortality. And we've, uh, this was in that uh, JBI paper, but we've done more work with, uh, in comparing to Apache and found that we are, uh, we have a, a greater uh, area under the curve in predicting mortality using the RI than, than Apache does. This is uh, some work that was done at Yale. Uh, the graph on the left is, these are admission scores. So if you come in with a score between 90 and 100, your average length of stay is a little more than two days. If you come in with a score between 50 and 60, your average length of stay is uh, between six and seven days, and it correlates nicely. Uh, also, uh, the score at admission correlates with cost of stay. This is some work which was done at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. They, they call condition A as cardiac or uh, pulmonary arrest. And what they found was that on average, the score declines before an event. So zero is when the event is. Starts really declining significantly about uh, eight to 10 hours before the event. And this was published in 2015. Okay, so in, to take this from the theoretical to the more concrete, it's useful to go through a case study. So this was a situation where the chief medical officer came to us and said, okay, we had a, a sentinel event, it was in the newspaper, he'd spent two months of his life trying to understand what was going on with this situation and dealing with the aftermath. Um, but uh, they didn't know why he died. The family didn't allow for an autopsy. He said, why don't you put it in your system and see what you see? So this was a long time ago, and we were calculating the scores one at a time. So we got a score, it was 70, and the next one was 80, and then 70, and then 80, and I thought, well, you know, maybe we're not going to see anything either. But this is the graph that we generated. And so there was a very clear signal, a 50-point drop over a 12-hour period. And just to orient you, uh, each one, so this is the RI on the y-axis. Each one of these vertical lines is midnight, so you're looking at eight days' worth of data. Each one of the dots is when a new piece of data entered the EMR. The score is recalculated. And so this was a 46-year-old male who was admitted to the hospital by a podiatrist with a, was admitted with a foot ulcer, admitted by a podiatrist. So th this gentleman was not well when he came. His score was about 70 when he came. He was a diabetic, as you might have uh, guessed, and also an alcoholic. But the thing is, he went through a transition. He went through a transition of being sort of a complicated case but stable to being a complicated case but unstable. 
And that was not recognized, and that was really the reason that he died. But the, the first question here is, why when the physicians looked at the medical record, did they not see this clear signal? And the answer is really they were looking at different things. So at 7.30 in the morning, at the top of that sort of plateau before the fall, here are the vital signs. You can read it across the top. At 8 o'clock at night, when the score had fallen to 25, here are the vital signs at that point. So if you compare the top row to the bottom row and ask yourself, is there anything there that would have gotten your attention? Uh, the answer is no. There really is. There were no changes in vital signs that have gotten attention. So what did we key off of? Well, what we keyed off of were the nursing assessments. Um, one of the elements I haven't really mentioned it, that we have in the model is the Braden score, which is thought of as a nursing tool to predict the likelihood of developing a pressure ulcer. Turns out it's a very useful uh, variable in our model. But the, the value of the Braden score fell from 18 to 12. And for those of you familiar with it, that's a very significant drop. Uh, but also during this period, the, the patient had failed his food and nutrition assessment, uh, failed uh, his GU assessment, failed his neurological assessment, psychosocial and safety. And what that looked like, because I spoke to the charge nurse taking care of this patient, is this gentleman was hallucinating, he was incontinent, he was having trouble walking, um, was not eating, and the nurses told me that they knew that something had changed. So there was a significant change in the condition of this patient. However, because the numbers hadn't changed, the vitals were still okay, the labs were still okay, she could not get the attention of a physician. And so this gentleman's problem was he sort of fell between the cracks. No one was paying attention, and he didn't, he didn't die at the bottom of that 50-point uh, fall. He lived for another three days, but just he wasn't on anybody's radar. And so one of the main points, one of the main values of this whole system is for communication. You can think of it this way. It's, it's a way to, to feed nursing information to a physician in a very easy to absorb form. But it's, it's not just uh, the information that the nurse has on that shift, not just the nurse who's right in front of you. It's the nurse from the previous shift and the previous shift and the previous shift. And all of that information is being conveyed to you in the form of the trajectory. We created these graphs, but we also uh, realized that we had to pick out the graphs that were most interesting. It wasn't enough just to have the graphs available. And so we created a set, we generated a set of rules to pick out graphs of interest. The very high acuity rule, very simple, has the patient score fallen below 20, okay? This is data from an academic medical center. 
about 48,000 patients, 45,000, the answer was no. Score never fell below 20, about 3,500, yes. For those no's, they didn't fall below 20, the mortality rate was three-tenths of a percent. If you did fall below 20, the mortality rate was almost 26%. That's not to say that uh, those patients whose scores fell below 20 weren't getting proper care, and if the Rothman index had been there, they wouldn't have died. Most, the, the vast majority of those patients, when the scores fell, were already in an ICU, already getting the care that they needed. However, not all of them. Some of them were on med surge units, as was this gentleman that I just described, um, as in fact was my mother, and they were not, they, the acuity was not appreciated. We generated two other rules, now looking at changes in the score. A fall of the score of 50% within 24 hours, 30% within six hours, these identify different levels of acuity. And so you can think of these as three alerts uh, associated with increasing levels of acuity and requiring increasing levels of attention. Now you're looking at 22 patients. Each one of these graphs is five days. It's color-coded by the last score. So if the last score is below that red line, uh, the graph is going to be pink. Here are those same 22 patients now organized by if you've triggered one of these alerts. So the top row now has those patients who've triggered a very high acuity alert. One of the, so this is, again, just a way of identifying those patients most in need of attention. On the uh, left is another graph. This is a patient, uh, the last five days of his life. Uh, lots of dots, lots of measurements being taken. The gray line here is when he had a palliative care consult. And if you remember the scale, uh, that consult was uh, within uh, 24 hours of his death. So not uh, a good story. But the, the part which is really sort of sad is that the graph on the right is the same patient. Those vertical lines are still midnight, so you're looking at his entire stay, about six weeks. He came in with a score in the 70s, and over the next week or so, declined down to about zero. The red dots are when he was in the ICU, by the way. Um, he got to this low score and then remained there uh, for more than a month. And so the uh, opportunity there is the palliative care consult, instead of being at the very, very end of the graph, it had been moved a week or two weeks or maybe three weeks to the left, probably would have eliminated a lot of needless suffering. One of the things that is possible with the system is to look at prior visits. I'm sure that you have patients who you view as sort of uh, frequent flyers or frequent visitors to the hospital. So this is a patient who was in the hospital five times over a three-month period. 
there is a palliative care consult in the fifth visit. Um, maybe that was the right time, but the point is just that it shows the, not just the context of the hospital stay, but the context of the larger uh, interaction that the patient has had with the hospital. So let me talk about outcomes. This is a nurse's view. So this was a patient whose score was found to be below 20 on a med surge unit. And I'm just going to read some of the text because I think it gives a sense of the thought process. So the rapid response team nurse uh, spoke with the nurse on 1 South about the patient. History included renal cell carcinoma with metastasis to the lungs. Further examination, patient's respiratory rate was in the 40s with diminished breath sounds. Um, after consulting to the APRN and attending, arterial blood gas, chest x-ray was obtained. Uh, blood gas showed respiratory alkalosis, chest x-ray revealed pulmonary, pulmonary edema, administered Lasix, diuresis 800 cc's. Within an hour, the patient's respiratory status improved. Following day, goals of care discussion ensued. The point being, if the rapid response team nurse did not recognize this potential failure to rescue, the patient probably would have been intubated, placed on mechanical ventilation, an outcome that would not have been in line with the goals of care. This was, uh, these were some comments from a hospitalist. And what she said, this was the head of hospitalists at a community hospital, which she says, I'll quickly look at the number to try and get a sense of where do we need to triage ourselves? Who do we need to see first? So let me focus for a moment on the ICU. There is uh, always the question of which patient you need to see first, which is the most urgent, uh, the patient most urgently in need of attention. And so not uh, you may think of patients in the ICU would all have low scores. First of all, that's not true. Some patients uh, in the ICU are much, well, as you know uh, well, uh, much healthier than other patients in the ICU. And so one of the things that the tool is used for is to deal with uh, two things. One is rounding, to prioritize, as this uh, hospitalist was saying. The other is to understand the situation in the ICU in terms of if the ICU is at capacity, who am I going to discharge from the ICU if I know I have another patient coming in? Someone that has to come to the ICU, who can I move? And so I've been in the situation where I've spoken to ICU docs and the doc says, well, there's a whiteboard there and they're looking at the different patients and trying to figure out who is stable enough, who's going to do okay outside of the ICU. It's a very difficult decision. This gives that physician another piece of information, an objective piece of information in terms of the acuity of that patient, how well they're likely to do outside the ICU. There's another element which is really important also, and that is acuity level is not generally a horizontal line. It changes. And so if you're going in trying to evaluate a patient in terms of if he's, he or she is stable enough to be transferred out of the ICU, you ca you're capturing them at one moment. 
if you have this graph, you may see, okay, right now they look all right, but six hours before the score was down here. And 12 hours before it was up here. And 18 hours before it was down here. There's a, a significant instability. So you're, you're catching them on an upswing. You move them outside of the ICU and you know, the, the odds are there's gonna be another downswing. And now they're on a med surge unit and they don't, you don't have the resources available to, to attend to that patient. And there have been uh, now two studies done, one at University of Florida and one at Houston Methodist looking at the RI score of patients at discharge from uh, medical ICU and the relationship between the likelihood of a bad event uh, following either readmission to the ICU or RRT call or death, or if they're discharged from the hospital, readmission, um, there's a significant correlation there. And, uh, okay, so let me show you how it has turned out at various hospitals. This is Yale New Haven, one of their hospitals, St. Rayfield's, a 350-bed community hospital. They instituted what they called a SWAT team. These were ICU nurses, they had one nurse, uh, a coverage of one nurse per shift. When that nurse came in, she, they were all women, it turns out, she would look at the array of patients in the hospital, pick out those whose scores were either low or falling, and proactively round on those patients. The mortality rate before implementation was 1.9%, after it was went down to 1.3% and they've been able to maintain that. The gold line on the top is the mortality rate from their sister hospital, the main uh, academic medical center, Yale New Haven Hospital. Uh, their mortality rate was 2.3%. It was constant across that same period. So it acts as a, uh, as a control. Uh, and this was published in BMJ Quality and Safety in 2015. Houston Methodist had a similar outcome. Here you're looking at a mortality index. So this is the percent of expected mortality. The bars on the left represent nine months. The dark bar is a third of the hospital where they implemented the RI uh, as a surveillance tool. The, the lighter bar is where they had not. So the, the two bars are nine months before implementation and then these are each one quarter afterward. And what they found was that the, mor the mortality index, the percent of expected mortality that they were seeing, they were already at an excellent level. 0.7 is excellent. They went down to, to below 0.5 on those units that had the surveillance. And what they were doing was they were having nurses view these graphs five times a day and they were having nurse practitioners round on those most vulnerable patients. And as a result of this study, uh, they're actually in the process of implementing throughout, they have a system of um, eight community hospitals associated with Houston Methodist, and they're putting it throughout their whole system. This is another Yale hospital, Bridgeport Hospital, 322 beds. Uh, on the left is uh, the year before implementation, uh, this is the year after. They put in a system called right patient, right bed, right time. The point is surveillance. The 
I said the main element of this is communication. There's another part of it, which is to act as a safety net. Almost all the time you know what's going on with your patients, but not all the time. And the point is that this system, as it is automatically operating, and there's, there's no data entry, as I was referring to before, it's automatically calculated. It's available um, on a real-time basis. If that's sort of another set of eyes that, you know, eyes that don't blink, that are looking at all your patients, it will let you know about the patient that you didn't expect something to go wrong with and something is happening. So they saw a decrease in mortality and um, especially a decrease in sepsis mortality, 20% non-sepsis uh, mortality reduction, but almost 30% reduction in sepsis mortality. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm, I, I'm a scientist, I'm, I'm very skeptical of, of results. Uh, when we got the first results at uh, St. Raphael, I thought, well, that's pretty good, but 30% reduction is, is like too big and uh, must have been due to something else. And Yale spent six months trying to find other reasons for the reduction in mortality but still one hospital. Then when we saw it in Houston Methodist, I said, all right, now two hospitals. I'm starting to get interested. <laughs> and then when we saw it at Bridgeport, I'm thinking, yeah, this really works. It really works. So, so that is the story. So there now have been uh, uh, at least four million graphs viewed. Um, and as I said, this is a family story. I talked about the science, what's unique, nursing assessments, the way we evaluate risk, putting data on a common scale. We've worked very hard at validating this. And what is the point of it? The point of it is communication. It's a communication tool. It allows for proactive rapid response. It allows for surveillance. It's a safety net. Um, one of the things we've seen is earlier sepsis detection. In very pragmatic terms, it's a way to prioritize your attention, whether you're a, an ICU doc or a, working on a med surge unit. You need to know who needs you first. And then I talked about outcomes. And by the way, it's being implemented about 15 minutes away from here at Sinai Hospital, uh, LifeBridge Health. And that is what I have to say, and I thank you for your kind attention. And if there are any questions, be happy to answer. Yeah. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, great presentation. Um, I came from UPMC where we were just starting to use that, and I, so I wasn't as familiar as I'd like to be. I think it's a, it's a really interesting tool. The question I have is in the software that you use to, to describe the graphs, um, is there any way for a physician or someone who's worried about a patient because of the change in the Rothman index to look at the underlying 
uh, yeah. to see, okay, well, the reason the Rothman Index fell was because these variables changed to give them an idea of where to look. Yeah, no, absolutely. I didn't show that, but the graphs themselves are interactive. And so all you do is you click on a point and a little table opens up. It shows you all the values that went into calculating that score. And those values themselves are color-coded in terms of how much that particular value affected the score. And you can click on a few points and see, okay, from this is where we were at 9 o'clock, this is where we were at you know, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, this is at 3 o'clock, and you, know, you can see exactly what's changing. So, yes, you can do that. So, it's all in your, your one graph, the example you gave in the patient. Um, the nurses were doing uh, evaluations like every hour and every 20 minutes. Uh, 20 minutes. I don't see nurses doing that. Um, no. How many did you go back and retrospectively throw that data in? Or how did you get... No, no. Okay. No, that's a, that's a good point. Okay. So nurses were not doing an evaluation every 20 minutes. I mean, if you're in an ICU, you'll get a nurse do an evaluation every 15 minutes. But this was on a med surge yet. And typically, nurses do an evaluation, a full assessment once a shift. So once every 12 hours. They may do uh, another assessment midway through, so maybe you're looking at once every six hours. But the reason why there were so many points was that every time we get any new piece of data, we recalculate the score. So if I get a temperature, um, and I have, I have 26 inputs. If I uh, have one new input, I get a new temperature, I take the 25 old values and the one new value, recalculate the score. So it'll be another timestamp. And so the fact that there were a lot of different timestamps meant that at least one new piece of data entered at each one of those times. So this is that you're out of the world, but so the hospitals are using this to get a score. Yeah. You, how are you getting care to them? And then, if you don't get care to them, they have a lot of ICUs. You know, are you loading up the back end? Are you loading them up? Okay. Uh, yeah, I've been asked to repeat the question. So, um, you're question is, if you got a low score, how do you get care to that patient? That was the first part. Okay. There are a couple of ways. As I was saying, at uh, so these different models that I described at uh, St. Raphael and Houston Methodist were using nurses. And what they have at Houston Methodist is there's a kiosk at each nursing station which shows all the patients on the unit. It's updated as uh, data comes in, so it's always the most current. And it has the patients who have triggered one of the alarms at the top row. And the nurses are looking at it roughly five times a day. And as I say, the, uh, the nurse practitioners are also rounding on those patients. But you have to sort of consider different time scales. So, if there's something which is happening over the course of 15 minutes where a patient has a pulmonary embolism and they go into a, an extreme crisis, um, 
you know, if there's no one that has, if there's no one watching that patient, um, you know, our score is not going to help. In, in order for our score to, to exist, it has to get into the computer. And in general, in order to get into the computer, the nurse has to do something. Um, in an ICU, the vitals are fed into the computer automatically, but the nurse still validates them. And that's uh, often done every 15 minutes. So it's, you're seeing pretty close uh, to real time. But in, in fact, at one, one of our hospitals, we actually are taking data every minute from the monitors and updating our scores. So we generate you know, uh, thousands of points. Um, so we're very sensitive, but I guess the, the message is, I mean, if, if something is happening over a course of minutes, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to help you. If it's happening over the course of hours or even days, yes, we can help you. So was there another part to the question or did no, I? I'm just wondering how busy the ICUs are. Oh, how busy the ICUs are. Yeah. So, Right. So, you know, are we bumping up the ICU population by sending everyone to the ICU? No, we've, uh, our hospitals have not reported an uptick in ICU utilization. Although a lot of hospitals are operating their ICUs at capacity. And so what I was talking about, I sort of went a little bit on a tangent, but I thought it was important for this audience is that uh, it's used to decide who can leave an ICU. Yeah. 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 I think that'd be a better. Yeah. I mean, it, relevant for this question. Yeah, I understand. Um, any other questions? Yeah. Have you found more information on the front end about what kinds of information we could be better collecting from patients or could be included in nursing assessments that would result in a more accurate uh, RX? Uh, that's kind of interesting. So nurses spend about half their time in front of a computer these days, which is sort of a sad state of affairs. And about 80% of that is in documentation, which unfortunately no one looks at. So it's this huge investment that's made for almost uh, no benefit until now, because we're taking the data and, and using it to evaluate that patient and feeding it back. But in terms of uh, the nursing documentation, there tends to be sort of a one-way street, and that is you add things, uh, more and more things for nurses to document, and it's it's, uh, I guess, a lot easier to add than it is to subtract. And so I don't, I don't really think that there are, you know, there may be, but I, I don't think that there are significant areas of the nursing, uh, of the patient's condition that are not covered by nursing assessments currently that you would want to add in. And if I sort of had a magic wand, I'd say throw out half of all nursing documentation. You'd get, you'd get a lot more nursing time with the patient, 
which I, I'm a big believer in the, the uh, power of, that nurses have to uh, improve care. So, I mean, just think of all those extra nurses for free. Um, and in terms of what you really need in the medical record, you know, I mean, just because there's going to be a lawsuit three years from now, you know, is it worth spending? Um, a 500-bed hospital spends about $200 million a year for nurses to do that documentation. And, uh, you know, you could pay out a lot of legal costs for $200 million a year. I, I don't know. I, I have an opinion on it. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. So I'm one of the um, pulmonary critical care program directors, and the Association for Program Directors has been looking at, at different ways that people have been using the EMR and research on the EMR. Um, and one of the places in, in, in Oregon, in Oregon Health Sciences, um, they have identified that there's stuff in the EMR that goes unnoticed by fellows in training or by critical care docs that should be picked up. So coupling an index like this with the idea that out of the 30 patients in our medical ICU, these five patients' EMRs need to be scanned. They're using eye scanners to see where, where fellows' eyes go on the screen, oh. how, to, how to pop up things in different places to grab attention. But using an index that can direct a fellow or a critical care doc to a particular EMR, not just around the bedside, being able to glean information from, we're in the age of the medical record, we're not, it's not going away. Um, would be fascinating to look at to see if it, if it Yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken to a lot of ICU docs at this point, and I've gotten a very divergent opinions. I spoke to a very uh, well-regarded head of an ICU at an academic medical center who told me that if one of his residents needed to look at a graph to tell them that their patient was getting sicker, they'd have to find a new job. On, uh, on the other hand, I've spoken to ICU docs that say, kind of like, are you kidding? <laughs> you know, we're overwhelmed with data. Um, and it's not possible to absorb it. And if you can show me a trend um, in that data, it's very powerful. And you know, it's uh, one of the things that, well, everybody in the ICU is already sick, so what you need this for? No, it's, they're not all equally sick. As you, again, I'm not a physician. I've never taken care of a patient, but I, I've looked at enough graphs. I know that they're not, not all equally sick. And uh, because patients are sick in the ICU, if you have a downtrend, your window for catching that is limited before there's a serious result. And so if I can, you know, you're, you're following, you know, 10 patients or 20 patients or five patients, whatever. And if I can say, look at bed number three now, um, something that, you know, you were absorbed someplace else, um, that could be important. So, thank you. We'll be in the back if anyone has any further questions. But thank you very much, Dr. Rafi. Appreciate it. You're welcome.